Solar energy is a growing market. Improvements in hardware have led to some people predicting that solar energy will be powering the entire world within the next few decades. Regardless of whether that's true, undoubtedly a large percentage of our current energy infrastructure will be replaced by solar in the near future. And replacing our old, inefficient power grid requires massive capital investment. On Software Engineering Daily, the resources that we usually talk about are memory, bandwidth, storage, and other computer science concepts. Today, David Reese joins us to talk about energy and financial capital, which are resources that are so fundamental that we usually don't even consider them. But we do also talk about software. David is the CTO of Wonder Capital, a fintech company that facilitates investments in solar power. It's a really fascinating conversation that is kind of off the beaten path of Software Engineering Daily, but I do try to stay to the roots of the show and talk about software engineering where it's relevant. David Reese is the CTO of Wonder Capital, a company that lets retail investors put money into solar projects. David, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This show is typically about software engineering, and we really try not to stray very far from that focus, but energy is a limited resource, and the amount of energy that's available and the type of energy infrastructure that we have puts limitations on the types of products that we build, and ultimately, the types of products that we build drive the types of software that we write. So, I want to get into all of that, the software components, the software engineering components, but... Um, since most of the inter- it, since most of the listeners don't know anything about the world of energy production, I don't think. Um, let's start by talking about that. So there there is huge growth in the solar industry right now. What are the biggest drivers of the growth of solar? Absolutely, yeah. So um, the it's a really exciting time in the industry. You know, I think we have been uh, hearing about solar now for you know several decades and. Uh, it's been kind of, uh, I think, to some greater or lesser degree over the last couple of decades, uh, you know, vaporware, I suppose. Um, but it's really kind of coming of age. And the primary drivers, um, it's a great question, the primary drivers are uh, hardware costs, which have been coming down reliably um, over the last decade or so. We're seeing roughly 8 to 10% of your cost reductions annually um, from equipment manufacturers. And I think the thing that is often lost when people talk about energy um, the energy industry uh, in general is that it all energy is the ultimate commodity, and everything pivots on sort of the cost of energy. So it doesn't matter how cool your you know brand new solar uh, energy technology is. The only thing ultimately that matters when it when you know when you're talking about getting uh, equipment deployed at scale is the is the effective cost of the of energy that's that that equipment is capable of producing um so that's one of the primary drivers the other primary driver is uh is financing and that's what we do so if you look at what's happened within so there's three kind of primary sectors within solar in particular um there's residential uh there's commercial and then there's utility scale utility scale projects are you know something like 20 to hundreds of millions of dollars built out in the desert um and they're kind of their own their own ball game in of themselves Residential is where we've seen really a lot of growth over the last few years in particular. Um, you know, probably some, some of these companies like SolarCity and Vivint, uh, these are very large companies, publicly traded. Um, and the, uh, th- so the, you know, there are a couple of 
different models within the industry, but the primary sort of, uh, you know, the common denominator across all of them is that um, the, you know, the, the, the growth that we've seen over the last five five years, especially five to 10 years, is really the availability of financing. Solar is an asset that is just begging to be financed. Um, you know, it has about a 30 year lifespan, so it generates value over that time frame, but it does have a pretty large upfront capital cost. Um, and so that's how we've seen a lot of that, that growth be fueled. So I get that there are, it sounds like there's two main drivers. There's the hardware improvements as well as the improvements to capital. And I want to get into the capital part eventually, but let's talk a little more about the the broader scope. So what what percentage of our energy consumption today is solar? Right. So a very, very tiny fraction. It's, it's difficult to pinpoint an exact number on it. Um, you know, there's pretty good stats in terms of what the, you know, what, what kind of, what, what grid scale energy is, is looking like, but overall it's a tiny fraction. It's less than a percent of our overall, uh, our, you know, our global energy consumption. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a figure that we expect to grow to, you know, uh, hopefully a plurality, um, if not a majority over the next couple of decades. Yeah, and Ray Kurzweil recently said that solar energy is going to power the entire world within 12 years. And his thinking on this, like his thinking on everything, is that the growth of solar is exponential, just like processing power. You know, we know that processing power doubles roughly every 18 to 24 months. I mean, what do you think of this exponential prediction is, you know, are, what are the factors that are contributing to solar energy production potentially doubling its market share every two years? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we all know Ray Kurzweil loves his exponentials. Um, and I would absolutely love for, for that to be the case. I think we're going to see uh, extremely rapid growth within the industry. And I think that, um, you know, ultimately the, uh, primary driver is going to be economic motivations um, right now. So, you know, solar is kind of exiting this phase um, where, you know, if you step back five to seven years, it was still kind of a luxury, uh, you know, sort of energy production um, uh, mechanism, right? So it was something that, uh, you know, the federal and state governments were really pushing utilities to adopt. And it was something that wealthy homeowners were putting on their roofs. Um, and there, you know, we obviously know there's a lot of benefits with uh, carbon neutral forms of power. Um, but, but that's really changing. And now, you know, we're at a point where uh, we don't actually, so us personally, we won't finance systems where the, the beneficiary of the system isn't saving at least 10%. And so, we're, you know, people are doing this because they're saving money. And I think the thing that's important to, to bear in mind there is that people are doing it now because they're, they're saving money and, and that makes sense. But that's going to change from something where it makes sense to where it's, you know, it's indefensible not to do it, right? Like you're saving a little bit of money today. Um, but as those costs continue to come down um, and also and there's other constituent costs like, you know, we can obviously get into some of this, but uh, financing is is relatively expensive today compared to where we think it will ultimately be in the long term because solar is still seen by the capital markets as a bit of an exotic asset. Um, and so as those sort of tides start to turn and all of these constituent costs that go into building a system come down, um, it's going to be an extremely compelling case. Um, and we're going to, you know, it's, it's going to, and, and this is all happening in an environment where energy is reliably uh, getting uh, increasingly expensive 
from the utilities, and there's a couple of drivers for that. Okay, so let's talk about the technology side of things, and then we'll get into the financing side of things. So you said that hardware improvements are one of the components that are leading to this growth in solar, but with improved hardware, you get improved software. You at least get improved opportunities for software. How is that intersection of hardware and software making solar power more viable? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that when we, uh, when we look at kind of like the kind of the raw energy equipment landscape, um, there is definitely opportunity uh, for software to, to play in that space. Um, you know, there's there are a lot of companies, uh, early stage companies now that are uh, developing kind of, you know, optimization infrastructure for um, integrating these uh, what are called sort of, uh, well, they're, they're behind the meter system. So the systems that, you know, sit on rooftops that, that sort of uh, serve a specific building and optimizing that kind of that that. Uh, energy consumption at the building level. Um, but certainly, and this may be sort of biased, um, you know, from our perspective and, and the way that we kind of view this market, but where we really think that there is a huge amount of opportunity for software to play is really all of the enabling that has to happen. You know, it's all fine and dandy to have uh, great technology that efficiently produces energy, cleanly produces energy, produces inexpensive energy, but we need to be able to get that equipment deployed and we need to do it at an astronomical scale. I mean, we're talking about trillions of dollars of infrastructure that need to be deployed. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. So, you know, one of, um, if you read a lot of the research that's being done uh, by some of the national labs around kind of uh, what the, what the you know, what future kind of um, improvements we're likely to see in terms of the solar cost basis, um, there's a lot of focus on things like customer acquisition cost. Um, there's a bunch of companies that are working on that, trying to uh, drive that down. Um, I'd say like even more generally, if you look at kind of the way the system is or where the, where the, the industry is architected today, it's kind of, you know, it's a byproduct of its own legacy in the sense that um, you've got kind of some of the leading uh, 800 pound gorillas in the space and they own significant market share. But within the U.S., uh, depending on kind of who you ask, there's anywhere you know, between 1,500 and 5,000 different solar installers. And so there's a really long tail of uh, companies that are out on roofs, bolting panels onto buildings. And those companies today are doing a lot of things that are not construction. These are fundamentally contractors. I mean, a lot of these are um, electricians who have grown their business and have kind of developed a specialization in solar um, or general contractors that have kind of pivoted into solar or expanded their offering to include solar. And there's a lot of things that these companies are doing that they're not really particularly great at doing. Um, and they don't, it's not necessarily something that's really kind of down the middle of the fairway for them. They're doing it as a matter of necessity, um, just, just as a byproduct of, you know, this, this industry being nascent. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for software to be built <clears throat> to help these companies do things that are kind of ancillary to the actual system design and installation. And what I, when I think about the enablers of the software, I think about, sensors and the the dramatically lowering cost of sensors and the improved backend infrastructure to ingest all of the data that's coming off of that sensor and and perform actions based on it is that relevant in this context like is import is it important to have i mean are are these solar panels getting smarter are are these sensors playing an important role that's uh, again that's a really really interesting uh 
question and kind of point that you're making there. And I think the answer is absolutely yes, it's, it's crucial. Um, from a kind of a tactical perspective, there's, you know, for us, there's a role that um, sensor data plays uh, or has, it doesn't play today, but it, but it will uh, in the relatively near future play, um, which is that some of these financing structures um, a lot of people talk about kind of distributed utilities. They talk about Solar City, for example, as a distributed utility. And what they mean by that is that Solar City owns a bunch of arrays that sit on people's roofs, and then they're selling the power from those arrays to the people that live in those houses or uh, work in those buildings. And uh, in order to do that, in order to finance under that structure, uh, you need to be able to, uh, you know, monitor system output. Um, you own the system. So if it's not performing properly, you need to be able to send crews out to, you know, to work on it. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of value in that. I'd say more broadly, and perhaps the more interesting kind of aspect of the role that sensor data plays in our kind of evolving energy infrastructure is I think um, the role that uh, I would assert um, utilities are, are currently failing to play. Um, there's been a lot of conversation, a lot of excitement over the last, you know, five or 10 years uh, about smart grid technology. And it's more or less gone nowhere. We haven't seen really any meaningful um, innovation in that space. I think a lot of the, a lot of the technology that's been deployed um, has kind of fallen flat. Because it's I, very siloed, right? Yeah. And you've got uh, kind of pretty complicated relationships between the different stakeholders in um, the grid space. So the relationship that the utility has with there's some entities um, that uh, manage kind of the flows of energy on the broader grid, on the broader transmission infrastructure um, and building, for example, marketplaces that allow, you know, a truly smart grid uh, to function. You know, that's it's a non-trivial problem. It's not, you know, it's not an impossible problem. It's 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 you know, I would say it's absolutely a solvable problem. But it's a problem that takes sort of real technology prowess to to solve. I would I would assert and um, and in the current you know entities that sort of I guess as a society we're asking to solve that problem are the utilities and utilities are not technology companies they don't have technology in their DNA they don't know how to build technology they really struggle to even procure technology um, you know the infrastructure that they are operating and maintaining is fundamentally sort of hundred year old infrastructure and so I think there's a huge opportunity for um, kind of a 21st century company to come along and, uh, you know, sort of solve some of those problems in a way where software is really kind of a first order citizen, where it's not seen as an implementation detail, but where it's seen as the true enabler. And I think if you look at, you know, if you look at the broader conversation around smart grid, um, it kind of, uh, you can approximate it as a move from this centralized uh, kind of top-down command and control style uh, energy infrastructure, which is what we have today. You know, literally you have people in offices, for example, in California, you have the California, uh, California Independent System Operator, which manages all transmission and distribution uh, or all transmission throughout the state. And then you have utilities that manage distribution within their jurisdictions. These, these are like telephone switchboard operators. That's exactly right. And they're, the way that they sort of optimize and run the system is based on modeling. They have these um, unbelievably complex models um, that are used uh, to basically 
uh, analyze how the system is likely to respond to different changes. Um, and, and fundamentally, we know that that is a brittle system. We know that anytime you have centralized uh, intelligence, you, have, uh, you often have many uh, single points of failure. And, um, and not to mention that if you try to, it's, it's difficult to optimize those systems today. Um, if you add a whole bunch of new variables to that system, i.e., a whole bunch of new generators on rooftops across, you know, the state or the country, um, that optimization becomes, you know, it's an M plus one problem. You have a, you have, uh, you know, becomes over, you know, becomes quickly orders of magnitude more complicated. Um, and so there's this, I think, you know, it's not clear how we get there, but I think that there's a lot of people who are interested in, um, kind of trying to push some of that intelligence out to the, out to the grid edge, um, which is, you know, a pattern that is, uh, reminiscent of obviously what we saw with internet architecture. I think that Enron was trying to solve this problem by kind of like crowdsourcing the demand from the free market. I mean, they obviously weren't doing it with solar, but they were kind of trying to solve the grid uh, distribution or equilibration problem. Uh, but they were obviously trying to trying to boil the ocean. Um, but you know, more uh, more. Concretely, or more uh, probabilistically, we will get to this smart grid landscape where we have sensors and uh, strong feedback loops and data streams that make sense, and and then there'll be plenty of room for data science and machine learning, and uh, you know we'll get these humans out of the loop. So, what is that going to look like? What are the areas of waste that? we're going to be able to eliminate is it is it eliminating is it just about eliminating humans from the process these switchboard operators or are there places where places in the grid where we're just like losing energy for no reason yeah i mean uh, so what my mind when i think about this problem um first and foremost goes to robustness and security um more so than kind of energy optimization um i think that the the you know, it's an it's an interesting point, um, and it's an interesting question. Um, how do we view kind of, uh, I suppose, you know, energy in terms of scarcity? So a lot of what we're doing today um, revolves around this idea that energy is scarce, whether or not that's something that's explicitly stated or not. Um, it's kind of implicit in sort of the focus that. Uh, regulators and uh, policymakers have placed on energy efficiency. And it's hard for me to say anything bad about energy efficiency. Obviously, if you can do more with one unit of energy, that's better than doing less with it. Um, and it's also worth noting that the reality of 2016 is that we do live in a world where energy is scarce. Um, but a lot of what, you know, if, you, if when we were sort of first uh, starting this company, we were looking for a way to kind of uh, sort of, you know, we were looking for a lever to pull uh, against this problem that wasn't necessarily predicated on scarcity. Um, where we kind of un- solved that underlying problem first. You know, if you, if you challenge the notion that energy must be scarce, then some of these other things go away and you can start to focus on things like, uh, you know, like robustness and security. Well, I mean, you should be focusing on those today regardless, but you know, obviously we have huge vulnerabilities in our grid today. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of getting humans out of the loop, I think there's, there's a lot, um, I would, I would say that it probably, you know, it's a difficult question to answer because it's, it's, 
I think it's very difficult to predict exactly how this ecosystem is going to evolve. But certainly one of the ways that I expect um, removing humans will be of significant value is that uh, we're able to do more types of kind of real-time automated bidding processes um, so that energy is accurately priced. Does that okay, kind of so, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So one, so one way or another, what is clear is that the infrastructure that we have is decrepit and it's wasteful in one way or another and it is going to be replaced and the the goal of wonder capital is to facilitate that that energy infrastructure improvement revamping replacement uh facilitate it by the by improving and increasing the flow of capital so Let's let's move into a conversation about how this works. So I read a post on the Wonder Capital blog about this, why commercial solar needs fintech. And you basically laid out, you know, how much infrastructure there is that needs to be revamped. This entire uh, old world utility grid, non-smart grid. Um, and the, the thrust the thrust of the post that I read was that the solar installations for residential scale, which is like the solar city type of places, and then for utility scale, those segments are doing fine. They're, you know, it's, I guess they're, they're the investments are happening, um, they're, the, the capital is getting allocated, but the commercial solar market is not developing as quickly as it could, and the commercial solar market is huge. And the reason that the commercial solar market is not evolving as quickly is because these commercial investments, they're more like one-off investments, and the investments require a lot of diligence. And because commercial solar investment is different in contrast to uh, the residential scale or the utility scale, which are pretty homogeneous, um, it's more complex to to get people to, to invest in them. So... So commercial solar, explain explain why commercial solar power makes for more complex investments than residential solar or utility-scale solar. Absolutely. And by the way, that's an excellent synopsis. Um, so the so it, it so first of all it, it's it's not more complex than utility scale. Um, the reason that utility scale doesn't suffer from this is simply because of its scale. So if you're doing a hundred million dollar investment um, out in the desert, you can afford to spend significant amounts of money on transactions. Right? You can have dedicated teams, analysts, etc. Um, now compared to residential, there's a couple things at play. Um, one simply is that um, for homeowners, uh, the transaction is a lot like, you know, signing up for a cell phone service from Verizon or something like that. There's some contracts that, you know, an installer or solar city or Vivint or one of these big players will, will put down on, on your dining room table. Um, you sign them and, and that's kind of the deal. There's no expectation that they're negotiated. Um, you know, the terms are, are pretty standard and, and pretty fair. Um, and if you contrast that to commercial, now you're dealing with entities that have a legal counsel, generally speaking, and so it's much more difficult to uh, to get contracts uh, executed in kind of one pass. There's more of an expectation uh, around negotiation, um, and that's also kind of a byproduct of the fact that commercial contracts are very non-standard. They're very they just there's not a lot of uh, you know they have not coalesced within the industry, and there's every you know. 
rarely do we see two different uh, two contracts from two different installers that look really anything alike. And so there's a standardization issue that I think a lot of people have focused on recently. Um, but but more generally, there's there's also just a lot more complexity to to getting those deals done. And so that's something that uh, we've been working on um, getting pretty smart about. The other thing, and that's that's you know. I think a bit of a harder problem is the way that um, investors view solar investment risk. And so the reason that capital is available for uh, residential systems is uh, primarily because there's ubiquitous credit on which that capital can be distributed. So essentially what happens is you have um, some type of entity that goes out and secures a tranche of financing from you know, a financial institution. And that financial institution says, basically, go and deploy this capital to finance systems for homeowners that have a FICO score of 680 or above or 690 or above. And they kind of give them this box. Here are the zip codes that you can use this capital in here. You know, and and it's, it mostly, though, focuses on what's called off-taker credit, which just means the creditworthiness of the borrower um, or, or the off-taker, depending on the financial structure. It's not always a debt structure. Um, and that's that's a bit problematic because if you think about fundamentally what FICO is, uh, it is a sort of general purpose credit risk proxy. Um, and solar investment risk has a very specific set of risks, um, some of which do relate to the credit worthiness of, of the customer, but not all of which do. There's actually a really good recourse um, for you know recovering value from uh, financings that have, have entered into default. And uh, so, so anyway, needless to say, regardless of how good that risk analysis is, that exists and it allows capital to flow. That FICO equivalent doesn't exist within commercial. Um, you only really start to get reliable credit scores at you know very large scale. So you can, you know, Walmart has a credit score. You can go to Dun and Bradstreet and ask them what you know how credible Walmart is, and they'll tell you very credible. Um, but if you go down market and you start looking at even relatively large companies like twenty, thirty million dollar run rate companies that are maybe local businesses, um, you know, local manufacturing facilities, things like that, you oftentimes don't see very thick uh, credit profiles, which makes it very difficult to extend uh, financing in the way that works for residential. Um, and so, there's a couple of reasons for for that. It's it's generally referred to as the small business lending problem, although it applies to medium sized businesses as well. And there's a couple of companies out there that are explicitly trying to address that for the purposes of extending general purpose credit. Um, what we're doing is not trying to necessarily address that problem explicitly, but trying to do a much better job of characterizing sort of the solar attributes of the investment risk. Um, and so, you know, we're still looking at credit and we look for, for what we call bankable credit, um, but it's not the only thing that we care about. And that really enables us to look much more deeply into the, into the commercial market and extend uh, financing to, to many more businesses. Okay, so let's start to talk about that. If I'm working on a commercial solar project and I want my project to be funded using investment from people who are on Wonder Capital, explain how that works. Explain how this two-sided marketplace works. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, on the on the capital side, we're continuously we have funds, and so we're they're rolling funds. We're continuously out, uh, sort of 
you know, trying to get new investors into the funds and raising capital into the funds. Um, once we have, and, and the way that that works essentially is that investors, um, it's not an equity investment like you might see, you know, venture capitalists making an early stage company or something like that. It's a debt investment. Um, it's actually a very similar structure to Lending Club and to Prosper. Um, but it is a what's called a non-recourse payment dependent note, which is effectively a loan that the investor makes to our fund. Um, and then once we have that capital, we have this on the other side of the marketplace. Um, we have uh, an operations team that has established uh, pretty close working relationships with um, around 70 or so installers across the country. And so those installers, and this is kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but under the current paradigm of the industry, those installers are the ones that are out in the marketplace trying to sell commercial deals. Uh, And most of them actually have pretty established residential practices and then are also doing kind of commercial because um, they're generally much more lucrative projects than are the residential projects. Or more specifically, uh, there's a set of fixed costs associated and doing you know, commercial projects tend to be about 20 times bigger than residential. So for, you know, for the work of doing one project, you can do what would otherwise take you 20 residential projects to, to generate in terms of revenue. Um, in any event, these guys are out selling projects when they've kind of sold a project. Oftentimes they'll bring financing to the table. That's us. Um, and then we start to look at, we evaluate the project and determine whether or not it's a good fit for our financing. And there are, at this point, roughly 350 variables that we evaluate across the project. Um, And there's a range of different types of analysis. Some of it's um, very subjective. Some of it's very objective. Um, And, uh, and, but I can tell you that, you know, the, the primary thrust of the evaluation that we do is focused around the energy economics. And so when we look at making an investment um, or extending a loan to a commercial solar project, what we're really looking at is, you know, the project, the, the, the array itself doesn't have any intrinsic value. The value of the array is the energy that it produces over its lifespan. And so we're looking at what is the value of that energy over its lifespan? And then what is the recoverable, recoverable value? And that kind of determines essentially what the collateral value of the system represents to us. And then we look at some other things. We mix them together. We look at, you know, the creditworthiness of the bar. We look at vacancy risk. We look at, uh, we do some modeling to estimate uh, what sort of median uh, duration of vacancy would be like in this environment. We look at how sort of desirable the commercial property is. And essentially what we try to do is try to paint a picture of, um, you know, okay, if we're going to be generating energy out of this system for 30 years, how many of those years is that building going to be occupied? And from that, we can kind of determine, uh, you know, how healthy, how, how, how robust of an investment, um, you know, a particular project is. So let me see if I've got this correct. So a potential investment comes on the platform and you look at that investment in terms of around 650 variables. And those 650 variables are are guidelines that assess the economic worth of that investment, that project the projected economic worth of that investment. So it might be an array of solar panels out in the boonies somewhere where there's no development, but there is a project on a 30 year time horizon, there's projected massive development in the area. So there's projected uh, increased demand for that energy. So therefore you can uh, be able on, you know, if you're looking at it on a 30 year time horizon uh, and you're looking across the world on a 30 year time horizon, you will have a rolling improvement in in your machine learning model 
for how uh, for what makes a good a good solar investment based on the economics uh, is is that is that am I am I describing it correctly? That's that's like that's mostly correct. Um, so just to just to be clear, we don't uh, everything that we do is rooftop. Essentially, it's all what's called behind the meter. So it's all located in situ. And so I think the one thing um, that's important to connect the, the dots on is that you know we're we're basically we won't generally finance a system that's out in the boonies. We generally <laughs> want systems that are in that are essentially sit on top of high value real estate. Right. And so, and the reason for that, and also the way that we define what is high value real estate, um, it's not high end, it's high value is, um, the, uh, is, is essentially how likely is this building to stay occupied over a longer term time horizon. And so it, you know, it's important to note, um, there are obviously ways to sell power back to the grid. There are obviously ways to, you know, there's, there's, there's several different mechanisms for that. And the most common of which is net metering. There's virtual net metering. There's a couple different um, sort of regular regulatory constructs that allow people who own assets that are underutilized to feed power back. But those are subject to what we call regulatory risk. And so like if the political or regulatory winds change, you know, those policies may very well go away and our ability to generate revenue using those mechanisms may go away as well. And so what will go away is if we have a system on somebody's roof, um, if there's somebody in that building, we're pretty sure that they're going to be consuming electricity. And if they're consuming electricity, uh, you know, we're going to be able to sell that power to them at a rate less than what the utility will charge. So uh, so I guess, you know, that's, that's generally correct. I, I think the other thing to note is, you know, definitely this kind of evaluation process, we have kind of two sides of the platform. We have a kind of a borrower side and investor side. Um, they're, they're a little bit isolated in the sense that investors are not investing in specific projects. They're investing in a pool of projects and that diversifies their risk. Um, but it also gives, uh, it also eases some of the kind of uh, what we call capital matching challenges between the supply side and the demand side in terms of financing. Um, so we can uh, sort of smooth out some of those ripples. So how important is the machine learning component of it today? Because to me, it seems like, so even if you subtract machine learning from it, you have a a fintech platform where people can invest in a sensible investment. Uh, and I can see that having value in and of itself. Um, the machine learning component seems like maybe it could work like over a longer time frame, But today it seems like the problem is just so complex that it doesn't seem to me like a good application of machine learning. Am I wrong about that? Um, so, uh, so a couple things of that. I mean, no, you're not. You're not wrong. Uh, the so first of all, like the problem is multifaceted, and I, I've kind of come up with some new language to describe that. I I've I found recently that I hate describing problems as complex because I think it implicitly leads you to solution spaces that imply complexity. Um, and so yeah, there are definitely there's definitely a, a f- like we our stack covers a, a really actually pretty broad set of domains. Any given domain, so like the economic analysis that we're doing on energy economics, yeah, that definitely has complexity. It's not the type of thing that you can spin up on in 12 hours. Um, but it's also not rocket science. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's fundamentals based. And, it, it, you know, everything that we do, we endeavor to reason from, from first principles. Um, and so uh, I think from that perspective, you know, 
we're, we are, and also to kind of more directly answer your question, like we are not yet at a scale where we have the necessary training data to actually um, automate a lot of this, a lot of this process. Um, but that is the direction that we're going. Um, you know, we're also uh, not really actually trying to automate it entirely. Um, you know, we are sort of uh, pursuing, you know, what I often refer to as kind of like a PayPal fraud or a Palantir style approach, which is let's automate as much as we can. Let's not try to eliminate the humans. Let's just try to optimize their cycles. And so we're talking about, you know, automating, you know, 85 to 95% of our underwriting process, um, but then just making our operations team really as efficient as possible uh, at uh, evaluating these systems. And so, you know, we're definitely a ways off from uh, being able to sort of really dig in on kind of some of the algorithmic um, and automated, or maybe more specifically, the, the automated algorithmic aspects of, of the underwriting. Um, but we're definitely on a, on a track to get there. I mean, to give you kind of a sense of, of where we're headed, you know, this year we'll probably do something on the order of about 50 deals. Um, next year, we're going to try to 10x that. And internally, when we talk about the infrastructure that we're building, you know, we're talking about doing 10 to 20,000 deals a year. That's kind of the system that we're, that we're designing for. Um, and so that kind of puts a bounding box around the extent to which we need automation, um, you know, both kind of the upper bound and the lower bound and what types of things um, we, we can sort of continue to do manually, I suppose, at scale. The final thing I'll comment on that is we're following a very much, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of some of uh, PG's essays, as I think many people are, um, and we are definitely doing unscalable things, which is one of my favorites of his. Um, and so, you know, we have our operations team doing things the hard way. You know, some of the process is really ugly. Um, some of it's across a bunch of different spreadsheets. And we've got a bunch of scripts that we, you know, run down at meetings when we're evaluating deals. Um, and that's all for the, you know, for the sake of rapid iteration. So we want to really try to zero in on, on our uh, problem domain and get a pretty firm understanding of that. And then it's incumbent upon the engineering team to, to deeply understand that, how that came to be, and uh, start to explore the solution space that allows us to kind of address some of those issues. So that makes a ton of sense to me. Like, you you know, we're at this place where, uh, you know, over the next 10 years, if Ray Kurzweil is right, then the flywheel is really going to start spinning on improved speed of investment and... Uh, there will be more investments. Um, maybe Wonder Capital can get access to data on investments, even the ones that aren't made on the platform. So these 650 variables start to get better understood, which ones correlate with a strong investment. But in that scenario, uh, where the model starts to really come into resolution, um, are there still existential risks to that model. For example, let's say self-driving cars come online and it totally changes the the grid or you know the 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 uberization of deliveries and stuff totally change the demand you know drones could could change uh, the the energy demand um, or maybe maybe I'm I'm over overestimating how much that would actually affect energy demand like it, and i guess i guess maybe i'm i'm also potentially overestimating how important the this model creation is to the platform itself but um do you do you 
is that a concern at all that like you could build this model and the model would be based off of premises that might no longer be true all of a sudden if if self-driving cars come online or drones come online or whatever else. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's, there are always sort of risks associated with kind of, um, you know, a changing, uh, sort of, you know, just, just changing landscape of society, right. As some of these technologies, um, you know, come to kind of, uh, you know, mature. <laughs> right. Uh, I think though, I guess there's a couple things there. Um, one is, I think it's important, and I don't know if this is the, the observation that you're making with those examples, but oftentimes um, people conflate transportation energy with uh, grid-scale energy or non-transportation energy. And um, as far as we're concerned, the electrification of transport is only going to do really good things for our position in the market and for distributed energy in general. Um, you know, the, the uh, overwhelmingly transportation fuels are oil-based, um, liquid-based fuels, and uh, and that a lot of that demand is going to be shifting to the grid or you know the distributed grid, right? Um, and so that that is obviously going to uh, drive uh, drive additional demand for you know, the type of infrastructure that we're building. Um, I guess more generally, though. Um, there is absolutely potential for certain types of, you know, like, like anybody who is investing in, uh, you know, building stores for for big box retailers to occupy, you know, five or ten years ago is probably not doing so great right now, right? Um, so obviously, you know, those sort of once that last mile delivery, um, you know, once that kind of that gap closes. Uh, there's obviously kind of a changing that has implications for the demand for warehouse space and things like that. And so we definitely take, uh, you know, take into consideration as much of as much of those variables as possible. But ultimately, you know, we are, um, you know, our bet is, I guess, in a, in a sense, uh, there are aspects of it that are kind of um, informed by sort of trends towards urbanization. Um, you know, population density in the region is something that we take into consideration when we're looking at investments. Um, and so, you know, it's not it's not an overwhelming concern because we think that the the demand for energy sort of at the plug, so to speak, uh, is really only going to increase whether that additional demand is going to come from EVs or right. really just new technology uh, in general. And, you know, th- people talk sometimes about uh, sort of other types of existential risks around, okay, let's just speak in gross hypotheticals and say we bring fusion online in the near future, which, you know, I, I assume, I think we'll do it. I just don't know whether it's going to happen in the next century. But regardless, even if you were to do that, the only type of fusion that would, uh, you know, of course, speaking in a very theoretical sense here, the only type of fusion that would uh, really have an impact on us is distributed fusion. Because even if you were to drive the marginal cost of power at a centralized energy generation facility to zero, the fixed cost, uh, or rather the, the, you know, you, the, the marginal cost of that power does not affect the, uh, transmission and distribution cost, which is very significant. So transmission and distribution, i.e. getting power from a centralized generation facility to a household or to a commercial business, um, that sometimes can reach 50 to 60% of the actual cost power at the plug. And so, that's kind of the floor that we're competing with. And I think we actually have line of sight to solar being competitive with transmission and distribution costs alone, not to mention whatever incremental costs um, are associated with the, the primary fuel, which is, you know, for centralized uh, grid applications is, uh, you know, overwhelmingly hydrocarbon based and, um, 
uh, you know, and most often natural gas. Hmm. Okay. So, so I like that response because I think what I was getting at was that there are these potential macro trends that maybe they're an existential risk to the model that Wonder Capital is developing. But how you address that is basically most of the macroscopic existential risks are actually they're not they're not risks. They're things that would potentially be boosters of the Wonder Capital uh, vision of the future or accelerants. Um, so we should talk some about software since we're like already most of the way through this conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'd love to know some about the software architecture and what are the things that are important to, to keep in mind at Wonder Capital. I know that you started as a monolith. You've more recently moved towards microservices. Maybe you could tell me about the architecture as it started and how it has evolved over time. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's still early days for us at Wonder. Um, you know, we have a, uh, a small team. We're growing rapidly. Um, and, you know, we are, um, I'd say, you know, kind of as I mentioned um, with that sort of uh, do unscalable thing style approach, we're trying to, as much as we can, um, develop a robust understanding for the actual problem that we need to solve before we really sort of sink massive resources into building scalable infrastructure, um, you know, around the solutions to that problem. Um, so I'm very, you know, very, very sort of, uh, keyed into, uh, trying to not build the wrong thing. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I guess the, the microservices conversation is, I, th- I think, uh, personally, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, we are a monolith, um, still, um, and, as I mentioned, I think before, you know, the way that I view the problem that we're solving is that it's it's multifaceted. It has a pretty wide range of domains to kind of just rattle off a few. Um, you know, we basically had to build most of the infrastructure that you need in order to be a bank. You know, we're not a bank, but um, and we use Dwala uh, for our for our ACH transactions, for our programmatic transactions. Um, but there's, you know, a bunch of infrastructure that we had to build um, related to moving money, related to moving, uh, related to interacting with Dwala's infrastructure. Um, we have to do accounting. Um, so we, you know, we've got a whole bunch of investors. Um, each investment is in a different state. We need to account for all those investments. We also have accounting on the borrower side. Um, all the financing that we do needs, you know, needs, um, it's not super complex accounting, but it's, it's non-trivial. Um, we've got billing infrastructure, so we need to be able to sort of uh, invoice our, our borrowers monthly. We need to be able to draw down payments from them. Um, we need to be able to do the same for our investors, and that's calculating interest, calculating service fees, calculating you know all the things that you need to do in order to essentially be a lender. Um, we have end-of-year compliance stuff. We have to generate tax documents for all of our investors. We have to generate some documents for our borrowers as well. Um, every month we're generating statements. Um, then, of course, we have the investment flow. So we only, uh, based on sort of the current uh, the current uh, sort of securities regulations under which we're, we're issuing securities, um, we can only accept investment from accredited investors. So we need to be able to accredit our investors. We need to be able to verify those documents. Um, and we need to have, you know, we have uh, sort of an investor portal, all the stuff that goes along with servicing investors through that portal. Um, so I, I can go on, <laughs> but the point is that, you know, None of what we're doing, I don't think, in isolation is 
really all that difficult. Um, but it is kind of, it's been really interesting as we grow the team. How do we deal with that diversity of complexity and that diversity of nuance? There's a lot of nuance in, in all of these systems um, in a way that I, I don't think generally uh, occurs, at least not in my experience, on early stage teams. Um, so, you know, if you're a 40, 50 person development team, um, you know, maybe this stuff doesn't sound all that daunting, but, you know, the reality is we're three people right now. And, you know, we'll be probably six or seven by the end of the year, we're actively hiring. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the reality is we are still, you know, sort of a Series A resource constrained organization, and we're looking to run as lean as we can, as far as we can. Um, and so the way that we've kind of um, dealt with this is by introducing kind of SOA within our monolith. And I think there are some people who've been talking about this. Um, some people refer to it as a structured monolith. Um, there's a couple of different uh, paradigms for how this is done. And we're definitely still kind of experimenting with some of them. But uh, you know, towards the beginning of the year, we started to see a lot of this complexity developing in the system. We got kind of concerned about the monolith turning into a totally unmanageable ball of mud. Um, and uh, it was a real concern. And we went pretty far down the path of trying to see how viable it was for us to actually spin up microservices and actually break our application functionally across all of these different boundaries that were actually at that point starting to get pretty well defined. Um, as we prepared to do that, one of the first things that we did was reduce all of the interactions between these different services um, to kind of uh, really well-defined interfaces. And the first step for us to do that was to actually write the interfaces within the application. And uh, I'm happy to expound on any of this, but the kind of long story short is that we found uh, by doing that, we gained really, really a lot in terms of um, encapsulating complexity and compartmentalizing it to the point where if you fast forward to today, where we've kind of used this this process, it, essentially it involves uh, breaking out microservices without breaking without the breaking out part. And so we have these well defined interfaces. We don't have to do RPC. We don't have to do the DevOps. Um, you know, we don't have any DevOps load associated with having a bunch of different machines um, independent scaling. We don't have intra service authentication issues. Um, it's all a single process. Um, and for us, you know, we're operating a scale right now. Well, that's totally fine. We don't need to be able to individually scale specific services. The reality for us is that, I mean, even if you think about doing something like 20,000 deals a year, you can kind of throw metal at that problem. You know, if you're talking about doing 100 million, okay, maybe, you know, maybe you need to rethink that. Maybe that's kind of actual sort of Netflix scale of, of you know, real-time actions. Um, sure. So, so at yeah, your right. scale, you're, you're not going to hit a fail whale anytime soon. We don't expect to, no. <laughs> Certainly not. Yeah, so it's so it sounds like your you were started thinking about microservices and you ended up just refactoring your APIs. Um, I mean, so 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 yeah, that's basically right. I mean, we we actually kind of injected some APIs, right? Like we basically wrote the APIs that would be the APIs for the services, um, right? But we did it within Rails, which I don't know how you know how much you spent uh, how, you know how familiar you are with the environment, but obviously it's like any other MVC framework. It doesn't really have that construct built in. Right, it's something that we introduced. Okay, so so but in so in the future, basically, so so it sounds like you've kind of got a, a style at this point where, when you're ready to move to microservices, once you're at that scale, the 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 uh, the way that your methods are defined basically will be will. Um, their outward facing contract will be easier to port to some other some other language, some other platform, whether it's like 
JavaScript services running on Kubernetes or whatever. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's definitely kind of in the back of our minds is this idea that kind of the work that we've done today will make breaking these services out easier. But I think the realization was almost, um, it, it was almost that even short of that, even if hypothetically there would be no expectation to break out these services, um, there's A, a lot of uh, value in, I think, structuring complexity in this way. Um, and B, there's also, I think, uh, I'd say that the most important takeaway was, and the most interesting thing for me was, was this idea of taking something that had, you know, gained really a lot of momentum kind of in the software development community, i.e. microservices, and really trying to take it back down to fundamentals and be like, why are people so excited about this? What are like, let's actually list out what are the advantages, you know, communication, like, right? Right. Right, exactly. And, and, and I think, you know, that's, you look at a lot of uh, what people are talking about. And I think a lot of times people are focused on, uh, you know, the boundaries as the value that microservices provide. And I think, uh, you know, I don't know what the exact proportion is, but I'd say that something like, you know, let's, if you hold scalability as, let's say scalability isn't like a real issue, you know, and let's be honest about that, right? Because it's like, you can actually achieve quite a lot of scale um, in ways that you know might not intuitively seem, or they, they you know are not the most elegant. For example, um, but if you say if you just say scale, okay, well, let's not worry about scale. Um, then this boundary thing becomes the primary reason that microservices are of value. There's kind of a secondary, which is like sort of a technology agnosticism, which allows you to mix and match technologies, which is pretty cool. Um, but you know, of varying degrees of value depending on what you're actually working on. Um, and establishing a hard, establishing a hard cross boundary, um, you know, it's hard to say, okay, let's be disciplined and not let context bleed from model to model or controller to controller. Um, and so basically we says, well, why don't we just, you know, you still need to be disciplined because you still can do things that break these service boundaries easily. There's nothing that stops you from, you know, calling up uh, some, uh, you know, for uh, for us, the example would be like pulling in, you know, a bank uh, namespaced active record model into our accounting namespace. Like you could do that, but that would be a violation of our boundary and, you know, that would not pass code review, right? So the idea is that you can achieve um, hard to cross boundaries without incurring a lot of the costs, which, you know, which would be like uh, fully async services or, um, you know, the dealing with kind of fault tolerance or, you know, uh, dealing with network faults if you're talking about RPC or just dealing with RPC, which, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's also not trivial if you're trying to really optimize for project velocity. Interesting. I, I really like that. Uh, it's some serious pragmatism. Um, okay, so we're running towards the end of the time. So I I guess I want to zoom out and like, you know, given that you've, you, you were, you're talking about this, you know, kind of maintaining the monolith in as you sort of move towards fixating on what your business model is going to be. I mean, are, what are the, what are the potential futures for where wonder capital is headed? If, if, if the business model hasn't been totally fixated on, sounds like you, you've got this two-sided marketplace thing right now, but it could go in a number of other directions. What are those directions? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, uh, I think broadly the direction is pretty clear. Like we're starting to get quite a lot of traction with the model that we have. Um, it's just not exactly clear where kind of the next 10x is coming from. There's a couple. We're kind of testing a couple hypotheses internally right now. 
Um, you know, so I think uh, it's really it really has to do. I'd say the the kind of the primary conversations that are being had internally that kind of have an impact on, I guess, you know, where we go from a technological or from a you know from a technology standpoint. Um, I think relate mostly to, uh, you know, where sort of where the, the, the deal structure kind of lands. And this is perhaps like a little bit, uh, nuanced in terms of the actual kind of where the rubber meets the road in terms of these financings. Um, but the, you know, our primary product to date has been a debt product. Um, we're looking at, uh, doing a couple of different structures and, uh, and that's, you know, that's, we've got a lot of market data on, on that. So they're sort of, uh, well-informed hypotheses, but it's also, you know, relatively big bet. And so there's a couple months of kind of, um, investigation that we're doing there as we kind of solidify some of, um, uh, some of that direction. But, you know, in terms of like a day-to-day execution, you know, the next three months of development are very clear. It's very clear what we need to do. Um, I would say almost the next six months, it's very clear, uh, beyond that, anybody who's working on an early stage company, if they tell you they know what they're doing in six months, they're probably lying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, uh, but basically it revolves around really structuring, um, the deal data. So any way you slice it, we're going to need really nicely structured data about these investments so that we can start to do some of the automation that we need to do. And so the work that we're doing right now is really about laying that foundation. Um, and that that's everything from, you know, building up, uh, kind of extending our borrower portal to accommodate more types of, of deals and do a better job of kind of structuring that, that data input. Um, and then uh, sort of once, once you know, that's kind of, that'll be in place in the next month or so. Um, as that kind of crystallizes, we're going to start moving into some of the evaluation infrastructure. And, um, you know, we're already kind of looking at different sort of um, ETL methodologies. It's not clear that that's necessary at this stage yet, but we're basically looking at um, what is kind of the V1 sort of automation look like? How do we take it from, you know, a two hour long conversation around our, conference room table, um, to a a nicely structured process whereby we can automate, you know, 10 or 20 or 30% of that, um, moving on up to, you know, 85 or 90 over the next, uh, 12 to 18 months. Okay. Well, that's, that's a great explanation of where the company's going. And, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It touched on a lot of things that we have not explored on software engineering daily. So, David, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.